0: Hello, and welcome to Ed Infinitum, the podcast that makes school the subject of study. I'm your host, David Nuremberg. This is Season 3, Episode 5, Watch Your Language. In Episode 10 of Season 2, I gave a description of culturally responsive teaching, namely consciously considering the impacts of race and the dynamics of power, including the structural inequities that come with it, in a school or classroom. A go-to way of teaching in a culturally responsive way for an English teacher like me is to include a wide variety of authors in the curriculum from many racial backgrounds, cultures, and social positions, as opposed to just the usual canon of dead white dudes. Now this is not to disparage dead white dudes, I mean, I'm going to be one too someday, but it's hard to engage students of color if they can't see themselves reflected in what they read. And it's hard to get white students to see people of color through any other lens than stereotypes if they don't get to read about people who don't look and act like they do. But a less obvious, and I think much more challenging, way in which English teachers have to grapple with the realities of race, culture, and structural oppression is not in the way we teach literature, but in the way we teach language. Specifically, the spelling, grammar, syntax, and usage of what we sometimes call standard English. In this episode, I'm going to do my best to challenge that notion of standard English, actually to expose it for both the fiction that it is and the impediment that it is towards equitable and dignified education for all students, and then figure out what the heck we do about that. I'll begin this ambitious project with everyone's favorite subject, grammar! No, really, don't stop the podcast, please bear with me. I've spent my whole career getting paid to make studying grammar fun and interesting. Besides, why do we even teach grammar? Why is the teaching of grammar a thing? Because there really is no need to from a linguistic perspective. As at the time you were verbal, or even slightly before, odds are that you already knew the grammar mechanics of your native language just fine. You see, language isn't random. By definition, it has to follow certain structures and rules, and that's because our brains create and impose those structures. Without getting too deep into the fields of cognitive linguistics or exploring the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, which I was pretty disappointed to learn involved nothing whatsoever about Klingons, most linguists pretty much agree these days that there is something in our brains that serves the function of what Noam Chomsky called the LAD, or Language Acquisition Device, most likely in the temporal lobe of the left side of our brain, in a place called Wernick's area, named after the brilliant German neuropathologist and not-so-brilliant bicyclist, Carl Wernick. No, really, the man pioneered our modern understanding of language disorders, then died at the young age of 45 in a bicycle crash. Anyway, Wernick's area of the brain is considered to be the place where we process language, along with specifically processing speech in Broca's area in the frontal lobe of the left brain, named after French scientist Paul Broca who took time out of his frequent public arguments with the Catholic Church, as well as making somewhat racist claims about anthropology, to define a lot of our present knowledge, not only of the brain, but of musculoskeletal features and other parts of human anatomy. All of that is the long way around, as saying that making sense of language is hardwired into our brains as human beings. If your brain has no particular abnormalities, and if you hear people speaking a language around you all through your infancy, then you learn that language, period. You don't even need to hear it, in fact. There are studies that show deaf babies whose parents use sign language in front of them wind up babbling, using their hands to replicate the basic structures of signing, including eventually whole words and concepts. And by learn language, I mean learn its grammar and syntax. At least with your native language, no one needs to teach you about the proper order of subjects and verbs. Even tiny kids who are just learning to speak English just don't make certain kinds of mistakes in trying to say, I go to the store. They might say something like, I go store. But they would never say, store go to the I. In fact, when kids make errors in the use of their native language, it's often to regularize what are otherwise irregularities in that language. I go to the store, a kid learning English as her first language might say, because that matches the structure of how the majority of verbs in English are conjugated. Today you ask, yesterday you asked. Today you listen, yesterday you listened. Today you puke yesterday you puked, etc. Kids pick up this pattern pretty easily. But today I go, yesterday I went, that's what threw the kid. She knew the grammatical rules of her own language so well, without ever studying them formally, that it seemed inappropriate to use words that were exceptions to those rules. So to sum it up, grammar, the way in which we arrange words to make meaning, is just a natural part of how we think and speak. So then why the heck do we have to learn it at school? Well, one explanation is that it all boils down to how humans don't speak or write language in a vacuum. We're social creatures. That's almost always why we use language, for social purposes. There's a difference between descriptive grammar, which is just making note of how people speak, versus prescriptive grammar, which says there are right and wrong ways to speak, You see, to a linguist, there is only one standard for so-called correct grammar, and that's can another speaker of your language correctly understand what you just said? Whether I say, I don't have any, or I don't got none, or me no have nothing, you still understand what I'm saying. I've used correct English in a way that saying, yo no tengo nada, or "blah blah blah blah, wouldn't be. Take that as a comfort when, if you're trying to speak a foreign language, you make god-awful errors, and I do this all the time in Japanese, where I mess up proper word order, and once I meant to say, my wife loves corn chocolate, and I wound up saying, corn chocolate loves my wife, with the connotation of LOVES my wife, and people still understood what I meant, and therefore I spoke Japanese correctly from a descriptive linguistic point of view. Darn it. And by the way, did I mention I made this error during a live radio interview? Anyway. This whole, as long as someone else who speaks the same language understands you, you're using it correctly in a linguistic sense, is kind of necessary because even people who speak the same language never speak it precisely the same way. These differences generally arise because of distance and isolation, kind of like Darwin's finches that got separated and eventually evolved different traits to suit their different environments. If you spread people far and wide enough, they will start evolving differences in accent, word usage, even spelling. That's why, depending on where you travel in the US, you might hear hi, howdy, hello, or y'all come back now, you hear? Even if they're in the same geographical location, people might still exhibit different uses of the same language based on differences in ancestry, or race, or social class, or age. This is why parents never, in any era, understand the slang their kids speak, and vice versa. And sometimes that's a blessing, because sometimes I'm not sure I want to know what my students are up to on their own time. Centuries ago, this didn't matter much, because in medieval or even renaissance England, the chances that most people would ever meet someone outside their own village were really small, and there weren't all that many techniques for long-distance communication. So who cared if everyone spoke a little differently? People weren't even consistent in the spellings and constructions they used themselves. Shakespeare often spelled the same words differently in the same play manuscript, and no one thought anything was odd with that. Because the idea of a proper, standard English, where spelling and grammar have rights and wrongs, do's and don'ts, hadn't really taken hold yet. In fact, it wouldn't even begin to for at least another century after Shakespeare's day. But as technology made it easier for people to travel and to communicate, and as an increasingly strong central government wanted to extend and solidify its control, all of these different Englishes started to come into contact with one another and if everyone was going to be able to communicate, they needed some form of standard English to go by. And guess who got to determine whose English became standard and therefore correct? The wealthy and powerful. The phrase, the king's English, is no accident. Now, this is kind of the history of all languages, even in comparably small and homogenous countries like, say, Japan. The proper so desu ne in Tokyo becomes "sodane" in the backwoods of Hokkaido, and becomes, well, I don't know what in Kansai dialect, because I can't understand nine-tenths of what Kansai dialect speakers say. Sorry. But English, being the second most spoken language in the world after Mandarin, has even more variation than most. Thanks to a combination of British imperialism and modern globalization, there are a great many variant English dialects, not all of which are entirely mutually intelligible. But the English that gets you recognized and respected by the powerful people in society is, no surprise, the English that those powerful people themselves use. That's the English you get taught in schools, and the rules it follows aren't any more special or sophisticated than those of anyone else's English. I don't have any is in no way linguistically more advanced than I don't got none. But if you don't learn those specific rules and structures of the language that's privileged, well, you're at a disadvantage in navigating a society ruled by the group that uses it natively. That's how we get to the point where, in English classrooms across the country, let alone around the world, the grammar, diction, and pronunciation unique to a subculture of affluent white European-descended Protestants who have advanced through the ranks of formal institutions of education that they created, winds up being taught as correct, while the language that you speak at home, which for many, many people, differs from that institutionalized official language, gets a red circle and an X around it if you use it in your essay. The way you speak is declared wrong, even unintelligent. Now, you can see where this becomes a problem for literally millions of black and brown school children, or even a whole bunch of white school kids, too. When these kids speak English, schools at best call it dialect, which is then held up in contrast to the official language of English. But as linguist Max Weinreich famously said, A language is just a dialect with an army and a navy. Actually, he said, a sprach is a dialect with an army and a fleet, because he spoke Yiddish. But anyway, think about that. A language is just a dialect with an army and a navy. Those with power decide what gets called the standard form of their language, and relegate everything else to something they call dialect. If the South had somehow won the American Civil War and conquered the North then I would in my classroom in Massachusetts be at this moment circling you all with a red pen on students' papers and correcting it to read with the proper form, y'all. But let me be very, very clear on one point. There is actually no such thing officially as standard English. Unlike in countries like, say, France, where there is literally a government ministry devoted to standardizing and policing the proper French language, we have nothing close to that in the USA. Even professional style guides don't agree. That's why it drives students nuts when one professor insists on them writing papers with APA format, and one with MLA, and one with Chicago. There is no standard English established by any universally acknowledged official organization, and as such, schools are just following this sort of nebulously agreed-upon consensus of usage that, incidentally, changes over time. In my own lifetime, for example, I've seen the acceptance of the third-person gender-neutral pronoun, they, used to describe a singular person. I might say of an unknown person occupying a single occupancy bathroom when I need to go, I wish they would hurry up, and that would have been marked wrong on papers when I was a high schooler. Yet despite this, not only do schools, and to be fair, many businesses and important institutions like courts and hospitals, privilege one particular, if not always 100% well-defined way of speaking and writing English as correct, but even more so than dress or mannerisms, language serves as a marker in our society that links to all sorts of assumptions about intelligence. I saw a poster once in an English teacher's classroom that read, Good grammar is like personal hygiene. You can ignore it if you want, but don't be surprised when people draw their own conclusions. When you change from a perspective of descriptive grammar, that person is speaking a different English, to one of prescriptive grammar, that person is speaking an incorrect English, well, it's not a big leap to that person isn't smart enough to know the right way to speak the language, and that has an immensely harmful effect on people who speak those other Englishes. The National Council of Teachers of English's Conference on College Composition and Communication, often referred to as the Four Cs for short, claims to be the largest organization dedicated to research, theory, and teaching about writing worldwide. The Four Cs issued a resolution in 1974 that read, and I will read it in its entirety because it's quite powerful, quote, We affirm the students' right to their own patterns and varieties of language, the dialects of their nurture or whatever dialects in which they find their own identity and style. Language scholars long ago denied that the myth of a standard American dialect has any validity. The claim that any one dialect is unacceptable amounts to an attempt of one social group to exert its dominance over another. Such a claim leads to false advice for speakers and writers and immoral advice for humans. A nation, proud of its diverse heritage and its cultural and racial variety, will preserve its heritage of dialects. We affirm strongly that teachers must have the experiences and training that will enable them to respect diversity and uphold the right of students to their own language. End quote. So you would think that would settle the issue, right? Well, if you've attended any English classes since 1974, well, you know from your own experience that the vast majority of English teachers do not follow this resolution. And to be fair, they probably aren't even aware of it. Honestly, I wasn't until I began actively researching the subject a couple of years ago. The idea of promoting standard correct English and penalizing the use of incorrect English is not only alive and well, it forms the core of much of English language arts instruction in our K-12 public schools. Of all the many forms of English that don't match up with this idea of standard English, the most maligned, without a doubt, is what linguists now call AAVE, or African-American Vernacular English, formerly known by other names like Black English or Ebonics. From the outset, I will emphasize that there is no singular form of AAVE, nor does every person who identifies as African-American speak something that a linguist would describe as AAVE. Rather, AAVE is an attempt to synthesize and codify some of the most common grammatical and syntactic functions of the kinds of English spoken by many, but by no means all, people who identify as African Americans. From the outset, such attempts drew fire from multiple quarters. Many white linguists and educators, and more than a few politicians, blasted the idea as somehow legitimating slang and vulgarity, celebrating a kind of ignorance of the English language. But some of the strongest criticism actually came from African American thought leaders, from Reverend Jesse Jackson to Nobel laureate poet Maya Angelou to comedian Bill Cosby. Here's an illustrative quote from Reverend Jackson quote, I understand the attempt to reach out to these children, but this is an unacceptable surrender, borderlining on disgrace, teaching down to our children. End quote. To Jackson, the idea of AAVE by its nature implied that black children somehow weren't smart enough to learn correct English. Again, that association of mastery of a particular dialect with the idea of intelligence as a whole. We don't tend to do that when we're talking about foreign languages in America. We might say I'm bad with languages, but we would never say only a stupid person couldn't learn medieval Korean. But somehow it's harder to defend not learning a specific English dialect, even though there are over 160 officially recognized English dialects and dozens, maybe hundreds more out there, and some of them are really, really different from one another. I'm thinking back to this time I was listening to reggae music in college with my roommate, who was a native Spanish speaker from Panama, and he asked me what language this song was in. I told him English. Then, what are these guys saying? asked my roommate, to which I replied, I have no idea. I don't think that's because I'm stupid, although you are welcome to draw your own conclusions, as always. It's just that the dialect that I've primarily heard and spoken my whole life is very, very different from Jamaican dialects of English. And even if I was, say, living in Jamaica and exposed to hearing Jamaican dialects all the time, that doesn't mean I wouldn't still have had to make a conscious and systematic effort to study it in order to really communicate in it like a native speaker would. Second language acquisition doesn't quite work in the same osmotic way first language acquisition does, after all. So maybe this example will give you a little bit of an idea of what three educators named Gary Simpkins, Charlaceta Simpkins, and Grace Holt had at the core of their project in 1977 when they got Houghton Mifflin to publish their compendium called Bridge, a cross-cultural reading program, which argued that teachers should consider speakers of AAVE the same way they would regard English language learners, and hypothesized that African American students' academic achievement might benefit from teachers using English as a second language teaching strategies to help AAVE speakers consciously study and master the different dialect of English that was now being demanded of them. They created dialect readers that arranged text in so-called standard English, and in AAVE, and in an intermediary bridge kind of language that combined elements of both. Although the initial research seemed pretty promising, public outcry of the kind I described a few minutes ago pretty much strangled their project in its cradle. But the work of Simpkins, Simpkins, and Holt wasn't entirely in vain, because it wound up forming part of the backbone of what would two years later become a landmark federal court case where AAVE was concerned. Martin Luther King Jr. Elementary School Children et al. versus Ann Arbor School District, 1979. In it, white civil rights lawyer Gabe Kamowitz joined forces with local African-American attorney Ken Lewis to argue on behalf of 15 black preschool and elementary school children who were either attending or were poised to attend the somewhat ironically named Martin Luther King Jr. Elementary School, which was actually situated in a largely white suburb of Ann Arbor, Michigan. The lawsuit alleged that the school was violating both the 14th Amendment and Title 20 of the U.S. legal code established in 1974 in the wake of the Civil Rights era, specifically Section 1703, which prohibits denial of equal educational opportunity. You've probably heard or read the statute before. Quote, No state shall deny equal educational opportunity to an individual on account of his or her race, color, sex, or national origin by, and then it lists all kinds of ways schools can do this, but Lewis and Kaimowicz focused on Section F, by the failure by an educational agency to take appropriate action to overcome language barriers that impede equal participation by students in its instructional programs, end quote. With an all-star team of expert witnesses that included professors of English and linguistics from six different universities, the lawyers for the plaintiffs argued the plaintiffs spoke a distinctly different kind of English than the language of instruction and assessment in the school. They did not, importantly, argue that some sort of dual-language program be provided of the kind that Simpkins, Simpkins, and Holt created, Rather, they said that the school had to provide such students with extra supports and accommodations in order for them to fully access and demonstrate their mastery of the curriculum. Also importantly, they argued that being continually chastised and penalized for using the language they spoke and heard at home resulted in immense feelings of shame. And remember, these are elementary schoolers, which in turn further impeded their self-concept and thus their learning. In other words, if you're told over and over that you're stupid because you don't have mastery of the ins and outs of this one particular dialect, then your academic performance is going to suffer, especially if you're only seven or eight years old. The lawyers for the plaintiffs were basically arguing that the cultural and particularly the linguistic mismatch between these students and the language of instruction dominant in the school constituted the equivalent of a special education need. In practice, if not under the precise definition of special ed law, For more about special ed law, see episode 3 from earlier this season. The court agreed with them, to an extent. I do encourage you to read a detailed description of the case that I've linked to on our website, because I have to say it is absolutely fascinating. In order that the school employ appropriate supports to get these kids up to speed, which it, well, kind of, sort of did, or at least tried. The story of their follow-through, or lack thereof, could make for a whole episode in itself. Part of what caused a stir in linguistic as well as educational circles, however, was that what became known as the Ann Arbor Decision, yes, capital D, officially established that quote, the language of black English has been shown to be a distinct, definable version of English, different from the standard English of the school and the general world of communications. It has definite language patterns, syntax, grammar, and history, end quote. The decision goes on to describe the prevalence, but not the universality, of AAVE usage among African Americans, and adds the rather pointed statement that it is, quote, not an acceptable method of communication in the educational world, in the commercial community, in the community of the arts and sciences, or among professionals. It is largely a system that is used in casual and informal communication among the poor and lesser educated, end quote. Yeah, that's not racist at all. It's basically saying Black English is inferior to this particular form of White English that the corridors of power respect, but, and this is important, it does say that Black English is a real thing, linguistically speaking, and is not just people being too stupid to speak so-called real English. It was this level of legitimacy, stemming from the Ann Arbor decision, that provided the core rationale to one of the most ambitious, or at least the most well-known, attempts to challenge the primacy of so-called standard English in American history, the 1996 Oakland Unified School District's Institution of Instruction in a dialect that they called Ebonics. Now the Oakland schools didn't invent this term. It was coined back in 1973, long before the Ann Arbor decision, by Dr. Robert Williams, an African American social psychologist. He merged the words ebony, meaning black, with phonics, meaning spoken sounds, in a presentation he made at a conference sponsored by the National Institutes of Health. A few words about Dr. Williams. He was the first African-American psychologist to be hired at a state mental health facility in Arkansas, and after several other prominent appointments, in 1968 he became a founding member of the National Association of Black Psychologists, and eventually served as its second president. He is not to be confused with Robert F. Williams, author of Negroes with Guns and Major Inspiration to Huey Newton and the Black Panthers, although I found at least one source online that claimed he was, so thank you internet. The Robert Williams we're talking about did found the Department of Black Studies at Washington University, which basically served as the model for similar programs throughout the country. And aside from Ebonics, he's also famous for creating the satirical intelligence test entitled The Black Intelligence Test of Cultural Homogeneity. Yes, the acronym is exactly what you think it is. As a way of highlighting how, if you give white students a test that is as biased in favor of African-American cultural experiences, as tests like the IQ test and the SATs are biased in favor of certain white cultural experiences, the white kids taking it will underperform compared to the black kids taking it, just as is the case with black students and those other tests. And yes, I've linked to that test on the podcast website as well if you want to give it a go. William's definition of abanix has been contested and modified by other academics over the years in ways that aren't really relevant right now, because what's germane here is how the Ann Arbor decision was seen to add legal weight to what until then was just a theory proposed by some ivory tower intellectuals discussing sociolinguistic theory. On December 18th, 1996, the school board of the Oakland Unified School District in California citing the Ann Arbor decision, among other sources, became the first district in the country to declare AAVE as a bona fide second language and, furthermore, a language to be used as a topic of formal study, although not, as is commonly misunderstood, a language to be used as the medium of instruction. The board voted unanimously to establish the teaching of African American students in, quote, their primary language, ebonics, for the combined purposes of maintaining the legitimacy and richness of such language and to facilitate their acquisition and mastery of English language skills," Unquote. The school board even applied to the U.S. Department of Education for funding for a bilingual program for this purpose, although the department pretty swiftly told them black English was just a dialect and not eligible. The Oakland School Board did, if you're curious, find an ally in the Linguistic Society of America, but sadly, as usual, no one cares what us academics think. The intent of the school board was in some ways more symbolic than anything else. They wanted to establish a sense of pride as a way of helping the district's chronically underperforming African-American students to develop a better self-concept for learning by treating abonics as a legitimate language and teaching kids about its origins and structures. As one of the school board members put it, quote, Someone said, why not just put these kids in remedial classes? My answer is, we had remedial classes in the 60s and 70s, and they did not work. We must do something different. Unquote. As with so many things in America, the media ran with the story and blew it fantastically out of proportion, with pundits hysterically claiming that Oakland was swapping out teaching English entirely and would be teaching black students only in the medium of ebonics and other such confabulations. The New York Times editorial page said that the school board's policy would lead to, quote, linguistic confusion, unquote, and Times columnist Frank Rich called the school board, and I quote, deranged and guilty of promoting a, quote, incendiary separatist manifesto, unquote. The National Head Start Association even published an anti abonics advertisement where a student is being taught Martin Luther King's speech as, I has a dream. Some state legislatures, like Virginia, even introduced bills to ban the teaching of abonics in their schools. In a moment, you're going to hear a couple of clips from Oakland School Board member Tony Cook, who took on the role as public advocate and defender of the Oakland School Board's decision, on various television interview shows explaining and defending the practice of enshrining abonics as a teaching tool. Miss Cook has quite an impressive history. Having dropped out of college to take care of her two children, she returned, earned both her bachelor's and her master's in urban planning, and went on to a career in Washington, D.C. that included working as the presidential advance to Jimmy Carter in his successful election campaign. The presidential advance is basically the person who manages all the travel and itineraries for a presidential candidate, and Miss Cook was the first African-American woman to ever serve in that role. She then went on to become Associate Dean of the School of Architecture and Planning at Howard University in Washington, D.C., and basically created Howard's Center for the Study of Urban Policy. Then she went on to work as Chief of Staff for the Los Angeles City Council, and then was active in political advocacy in Oakland, where she was courted for and ran successfully for school board. Over the course of her career, Ms. Cook was a national finalist in the White House Fellows Program, won the Sojourner Truth Leadership Award from the Oakland Alliance of Black School Educators, and won an award for outstanding leadership from the Congressional Black Caucus. So, yeah, I wanted to make sure you knew what an impressive set of credentials this individual had before you heard her submit to the grilling of one white news anchor after another. First, Chris Wallace on ABC's Nightline. Ms. Cook, school boards in Oakland and Los Angeles are already using Black English as a teaching tool. Why go beyond that as your school board did and call for teaching African-American students, quote, in their primary language? Isn't that inflammatory?
1: Well, I think it's important at this time, and thank you for the opportunity. It's important for you and the public to know what we're advocating is the usage of a teaching strategy. Our children already come to us speaking whatever you want to call it. Some call it Ibanic, some call it an African language system. Some may even just say it's bad English. But what we're doing is taking our children where they are, we're not devaluing them, using the standard English proficiency teaching strategy to bridge them to where we want them to be. And that is masters of the language of commerce in this country, which is standard American English.
0: Here she is facing Lindsay McNabb in CNN Crossfire's episode, All Eyes on Oakland.
1: I ask you this question. Yes, sir. Do you think that an African-American person can hope to make a success in most fields in this country if this person says he be going to work and uses a question, I ask you, he be going to work? Most African-Americans that are, in fact, uh, making it in our society uh, have one language style for the dominant society because we're not stupid. I mean, I think that's what we need to get away from. African Americans are not stupid. If a Spanish person comes to you speaking in uh, the remnants of their language, do you classify them as stupid? Or do you say they have a foreign language? Our children deserve the same right and respect as any other child. We know they come to school not speaking standard English. Ours is to bridge the gap so that we do not insult the attitude to lift the altitude.
0: Uh, That's not very difficult to understand. Cook wasn't the only one defending abonics in the Oakland schools, of course. Here's University of the District of Columbia professor Faye Von Cook, no relation, facing even harsher questioning on CNN. She here. Right, she here. Now, Ms. Von Cook, that's just bad English, isn't it? How could you say that's a language? No, that's different English. No,
1: that's, it's not, bad no, English. that's not bad English. But that's your opinion that it's bad. No, it's See, not my opinion no, that no, it's that,
0: bad. That is your opinion. And remember, this was ABC and CNN, mind you, the so-called liberal media. If Fox News had been a thing back then, I can only imagine how much more intense this might have been. And all that pressure added up. Within a month, the school board issued a clarifying statement. They were only going to be using the teaching of Ebonics as a tool to help facilitate, quote, mastery of English language skills while respecting and embracing the legitimacy and richness of the language patterns, quote, end quote, of the 50% of their students who identified as African American. Basically, the Ann Arbor decision, give black students supports to learn the privileged white dialect of English, but replacing the nasty postscript that AAVE was inferior with a message that it was just as good as any other language or dialect. That didn't end the controversy. Those comments I quoted from Jesse Jackson earlier were specifically about Oakland's decisions, and I didn't even give you some of the stronger ones, like this, quote, while we are fighting to teach our children so they become more qualified for jobs, in Oakland, some madness has erupted over making slang talk a second language. You don't have to go to school to learn to talk like garbage. Unquote. So, uh, yeah. In the end, only one school in Oakland, Prescott Elementary, actually went ahead with this initiative in any major way. And fifth grade teacher Carrie Secret at that school became something of a public spokesperson herself for the program, which basically amounted to not criticizing or banning students from speaking in their vernacular, and to including supplementing the usual literary reading lists with works written in forms of AAVE, like Whitney Houston's Step-by-Step and To Be Loved, or Some Sweet Honey in the Rock. Secret's class would use worksheets reminiscent of those from that 1974 Bridge program, which put AAVE and Standard English side-by-side and helped students translate back and forth between them. So, was this program, even in its limited implementation, successful in raising African-American students' academic scores? Well, no studies were able to demonstrate that it was, although there are a host of anecdotes from teachers, students, parents, and observers that said it did help African-American kids learn to code-switch better between the different kinds of English. That's the process that Tony Cook was referring to earlier, shifting between the language of home and the language of school on the fly as needed. And as a whole, this entire national spectacle did call attention, and eventually even more funding, to underserved African-American students in California. And yes, Reverend Jesse Jackson did eventually publicly change his mind about ebonics, once he found out what was actually going on in the schools. Oakland's ebonics program didn't even last out the 1990s, but it did inspire something of a minor sea change, maybe a lake change or a pond change, in the way that some educators viewed AAVE. Much smaller and less ambitious programs have cropped up in the intervening years at other schools across the country, focused on, at the very least, the recognition that deliberately teaching African American students the language of the white power structure is a prerequisite for academic achievement. That things that might appear to be learning gaps with these students might, in fact, be dialect understanding gaps. And learning that dialect is prerequisite for them learning whatever other skills in math or science or whatever that are at issue. The act of an English teacher telling students of color, or even white students, that what they're learning in English class during grammar lessons isn't how to speak and write in correct English, but rather adherence to one particular cultural flavor of English, and that all ways of speaking English are equally sophisticated and legitimate, but that they're learning this particular flavor for strategic social reasons, well, this is culturally responsive teaching, as well as more linguistically accurate teaching. And this is not new thinking. It was a part of that CCCC conference back in 1974. Here's more of what the educator's statement for that conference read. Quote, if we name the essential functions of writing as expressing oneself, communicating information and attitudes, and discovering meaning through both logic and metaphor, then we view variety of dialects as an advantage. In communication, one may choose roles which imply certain dialects, but the decision is a social one. For the dialect itself does not limit the information which can be carried, and the attitudes may be most clearly conveyed in the dialect the writer finds most congenial. Dialects are all equally serviceable in logic and metaphor." Unquote. From here, their statement argues for the importance of teaching content over mechanics and dialect, indicating that the most pressing issues in composition instruction have to do with the expression of ideas rather than the correctness of stylistic conventions. Mechanics like spelling and syntax are perhaps easier to quantify and quiz kids on, but they're ultimately less important aspects of language. The statement goes on, quote, When students want to play roles in dialects other than their own, they should be encouraged to experiment. But they can acquire the fundamental skills of writing in their own dialect. So acquiring skills in additional dialects may be useful, but this does not mean that students cannot learn all the essential functions of writing in dialects other than so-called standard English. In fact, comparing the writing allows the students to see for themselves that dialect seldom obscures clear forceful writing. Moreover, dialects change and evolve, so a new idea expressed in one dialect can be carried over to additional dialects as needed. So yes, not a new idea, except it still kind of is. But it shouldn't be, because this process of code switching between dialects This is something that to some extent we all do, regardless of our racial identity or age or class or social position. We all speak differently and use different vocabulary and expressions, sometimes even different syntax, in different contexts. We don't speak to our family the same way we speak to our boss, and we don't speak to our children with the same language we might use in a late-night drinking party with friends. We write a text message with very different grammatical structures than we would write a job application letter. Successfully using language is so much more complex than just memorizing a singular set of grammatical and syntactic rules. It's about recognizing that what diction is about is understanding the social impact of different words and constructions and how they are read by different conversation partners or audiences. That's the kind of English education that I didn't get until graduate school, but I really think should be taught as early as possible. And not only to kids who speak dialects like AAVE that differ widely from the, quote, standard English, but also to white folks and others who grow up speaking and writing something close to that standard English all the time. In a way, in fact, they're the ones who need a program like Ebonics that legitimates and even celebrates the origins and values of all dialects of the English language so they can stop viewing people who speak those dialects as somehow inferior. That is a way in which the English classroom can be culturally responsive, that goes far beyond adding some token writers of color to the usual diet of Shakespeare and Hemingway. That's a way to make English class into something that educates students not just about spelling and style rules, but about the fullest extent, versatility, and yes, beauty of language. That's all the time we have for now. Class dismissed, and we'll see you next time. I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you did, please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you found us. Like us on our Facebook page. And if you really enjoy it, please consider visiting our website, www.ed-infinitum.com, and making a donation to keep it running. Otherwise, in the grand tradition of underfunded public schools, we'll be reliant on only what we can make from bake sales. The website is the place to go if you want to suggest a topic or send me an email for any other reason. Our theme music is Happy Schoolmaster by ID. Thanks again for listening. And remember, every day brings us opportunities to learn something new. Still with us? Great. Here's your education fun fact for the episode. The longest lecture marathon recorded lasted 139 hours, 42 minutes, and 56 seconds and was delivered by Arvind Mishraf at Graphic Era University in Dehradun, India, lasting from March 1st through 7th in 2014. The lecture topic was scientific computation. Never complain about your professor's long-windedness again. Bye now.